So, today we come to the end of our second day of practice. <laughs> You've been um, hopefully experiencing the fruits of practice. How the mind can settle down and suddenly uh, turn inwardly more easily. Be with yourself without too much struggle. Something which will be perhaps much more difficult at home. You know, in your own environment with all the familiar things around you and all the um, the usual kind of props that keeps our life going. And um, what um, is quite obvious in, in each one of us is how much we, you know, how much we pick up the teachings in the way that is not always helpful, you know, because of the strength of our intellect, of our, uh, the discipline we've had over the years, the attachment we have to our little brain, you know, when we pick up the teachings, we, um, <clears throat> we create something out of them which might not be so helpful. Because what happened is that if you haven't got right view on those, um, if right view is not present, then um, there is always a discrepancy between what you're experiencing and what the mind is saying should experience. There's a kind of a gap. A gap. And that can make your life actually worse than before. At least before you were, you might have been deluded, but there was no gap. You were just kind of happily, you know, hopping along, deluded. Now you can't do that anymore. You know, you know too much. And again and again, when I meet people on retreat or when I teach, I, I notice how much we create an obstacles by mishandling the teaching or not looking at them from the place of right view. Instead of using them as a mean, we turn them into a goal. You know. So this is what is makes life difficult. It's like the teachings are not it's like imagine, I just can imagine if you had a, you know, if you had a, a good recipe for something and then, you know, um, for cooking something nice and delicious, you know, and then you keep kind of uh, 
hearing the stories of all the greatest cooks in the world, and you do your little cooking on your little stove, in your little kitchen, and it never tastes very good compared to what those great cooks are saying about this dish or that dish. So if we keep comparing ourselves to all the great chefs in the world, then it's a terribly disappointed experience. You know, we keep missing, we, keep, we, we feel we keep missing something ter- dreadfully important. Ingredients are not white. And then you, you feel very, um, you know, you, you, your self-esteem just goes down the drain. The sense of appreciation of who you are, you know, what is really important to cultivate in practice somehow um, just vanish in the face of the goal. The goal being, I should be kind, I should be sincere, I should be able to deal with situations, I should be good. I should be loving, caring, mindful, patient, generous. And we don't see this um, this voice very clearly because it has already somatized. It's already in the body. You just feel the stress of that hidden agenda. Just feel stressful. It's just life is an ongoing stressful experience because it's never good enough, it's never right enough, and somehow where I am now is not where I should be again. <laughs> not only should we experience something else, but what you're experiencing is not correct. There's a huge judgment. And then innocently we can say, well, but I should not be like that. Yes, of course you should not be like that if you were the Buddha. <laughs> you can see there's a hidden conceit as well. You know, We think of ourselves as being a fully enlightened being and according to a fully enlightened being, we should not think like that. Of course, we should be mindful, generous, kind, loving, caring. Sure, no doubt. You know. So um, there's a saying by my teacher at uh, the International Monastery in Thailand, which says, uh, the path is not to become a saint. We're not here to, to become a saint, but to see the way things are. That's a very profound um, comment, teaching. Because most of us are still trained to be a saint or some kind of good person. Not knowing that goodness doesn't come from holding on to goodness, but from actually being free. You know. From being freed, from being, uh, you know, free from attachment to this mind, to this body. So there's a bit of work to do because none of us are. And we're still very attached, not just to the mind and body, but to all the wounds, all the hurts all the pain that we have experienced through this life and maybe other lives. You know? So, you know, you can't start thinking in terms of practicing like a Buddha 
when you're still dealing with the, with the wounds of your life. This is why sometimes, you know, this more psychological aspect of the practice is important because uh, we need to attend to the, to the hurt. And that's also when you can bring into it the Buddhist teaching because basically, you know, most of you have known the teaching of the vulnerable truth, which the Buddha, which the Buddha once described when he was this, uh, having an exchange with some of his monks. And he was saying to them, you know, who do, what do you think, monks? Is there more leaves in the forest or is there more leaves in my hands? He had a handful of leaves. And of course the monks said, of course there's, you know, there's more leaves in the forest than in your hands. And the Buddha said, well, you know, the leaves in the forest, this is my, this is how much I know. The leaves in my hand, this is what you need to be free. So basically, he was implying you don't need to know everything I know. You just need to know what will make you free. And the handful of leaves is a symbol for the vulnerable truth. And those vulnerable truths, you know, the truth of suffering, the whole world suffers. How many people know they are suffering? We just experience suffering, but we don't understand suffering, do we? And yet that's the first thing that the teaching of the Buddha asks us to, um, to practice is understanding suffering. To get a kind of, to, to understand, to see clearly how it arises and how it ends, how it affects us and how we respond to it, how we react. Suffering is still a very strong identity. We're still very attached to it. As long as we react, we, that's a sign of attachment. You know, you still can't understand suffering as long as you're so attached to it. And the sign of attachment, I've said, is the amount of reactivity that goes with it. So you say, well, I, you know, I shouldn't be like that. I should understand suffering. It's easy. Suffering, suffering, easy. Not difficult. But you can see that the, those, those vulnerable truths are actually... Uh, I, I, I are not just talking about suffering from a stomach ache or from a headache or from um, you know or from a separation from a loved ones you know only but it's really talking about the whole human predicament you know this mind and body is a realm of suffering a realm of instability a realm of fear a realm of, um, you know, of, of, of desires that keeps telling you that that you should act in a certain way, and that reminds you that, you, that those desires don't get fulfilled, not all of them, anyway. And so, to understand suffering, just like to understand anything, you have to be at some level detached. Do you understand what that means? If there is too emotional, um, there's too emotional kind of bindings, 
in the situation that we're observing, then we we can't see things clearly because all our perception of the situation is filtered through the emotional response. And emotions are interesting, you know, they they come up so suddenly. You know, you will be maybe one may be in a position in a situation where you feel relaxed, confident and so on, and suddenly bang, a button is pushed and you start crying out of no nothing much, you know. Sometimes our tears are very disproportional with what happened. You know? And so um, we, 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 we suffer, but we don't understand suffering. And this is really the task that we have at hand, is to understand, to be humbly walking the path of understanding of suffering. Now most of us, we just want to get there. We want to get to the end of the path. We're not prepared to do the first step. As a famous, many, many, not just one famous, but a number of meditation teachers would say, you know, we, we, we want the results, but are we not prepared to set up the causes and conditions for the result that we want? We just want the results. We're too lazy, too impatient, too careless to actually do what is necessary to establish the causes for that result to arise. So, um, to understand suffering is also to understand the cause of suffering. The cause... And the cause of suffering in the scriptures, in the teachings of the Buddha, is um, described as, um, it describes in a number of ways. One, it's described in three, uh, in, in, in three folds. Um, the attachment to sense pleasure, sense, the attachment to becoming, and the attachment to non-becoming. Now let's look at that for, for a little while. You know. Attachment to sense, to the senses, to the gratification of the senses. Mm-hmm. This is a great part of our, you could say, our, what motivates us. You know, including coming here in meditation. Meditation is pleasant. Can be pleasant, not always. But there's something attractive about it, just to be able to sit still for a little while. There's a sense of pleasure that can come from making peace with oneself. Hmm? So, um, when you say, when I say, atta- uh, you know, attach- the cause of suffering is attachment to sensual pleasure. Now, what does that do to your mind? If that is the cause, then I should not have a sensual pleasure. Now, where do we begin with that? Since we're totally addicted to pleasure. See the trap that we create? And yet we do that all the time. So we believe in what the Buddha says. We don't, we're not ready to experiment and to see where we are at. The Buddha doesn't say you should cut your, you know, I mean, if it really a sensual pleasure was a problem, he will say just kill yourself and do something else, you know. Because the whole body is a, is, a, is a sense, it's a huge sense. 
with eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and even the thoughts are sense objects, and the mind is a sense, you know. And it's all about pleasure and pain, you know, we have to explain pleasure and pain. And once I read a statement in the, in the teachings of the Buddha, which really, uh, you know, woke me up, you know, because it's something very simple, but it, it makes you realize the predicament we are in. He says, pleasure is the absence of pain. Pain is the absence of pleasure. How about that to begin with, huh? So where are we? We're trying to find pleasure, but we forget it depends on the amount of pain we're pushing away. We are in pain, and we're trying to forget that that pain is how much we're going to, um, how much energy we're going to spend to get away from that pain and get gratified at some level. See, they, they, they condition one, condition the other. My God, where are we going to go from there? Huh? <laughs> you can see the trap. We're kind of stuck, aren't we? <laughs> We're in the realm of pleasure and pain. So, you know, the, the, the ego mind is very simple. It says, well, if the Buddha says that sense pleasure is bad, then I have to get rid of it. And if he says that, you know... Um, not clinging to sense pleasure is good, then I have to still get rid of all my sense pleasures. But from the perspective of practice, it's not important so much, not important what's happening. What is important is that the looking, the looking is what is important. And what is happening is your classroom that's you doing the learning. You're not somebody who is free from sense pleasure. You're not somebody who have seen the conditionality of pleasure and pain. You're not somebody who has seen the end of suffering yet. So what's happening to you is not a problem. It's your learning. That's all we've got. We've got nothing else to learn from. You see what we do to ourselves? Constantly judging, criticizing, hating, moving away from pain, clinging to pleasure, not realizing that really our refuge, if we take a you know, sense of refuge in the awakened mind, the Buddha mind, the Buddha within oneself, that refuge is the seeing itself, the knowing mind, the mind that knows. And so what happens to you is just knowing what happens to you. And the difference between an unenlightened person and an enlightened person is that the learning becomes a doorway to freedom. Learning becomes a doorway to peace. The learning becomes a doorway to, doorway to insight. See the difference? How little acceptance we have of ourselves because we think we should be someone who is not really learning anymore, who's done already the learning. You know, we jump very quickly to the end of the road because our thinking is so fast. So instead of looking at your experiences, let's say, for example, kamatanha, which is one of the first causes of suffering, of dukkha, instead of looking at it 
from a point of view of an enlightened mind, an awakened mind, and see, well, when I eat, when I have my cup of coffee in the morning, I really enjoy it, you might say. Or your green tea, decaffeinated green tea. Or I don't know. Whatever. And then you, what, what you, what is often the case is that something in us say, I should be enjoying that, you know. And then we speak about ourselves in the same way. Or I've, you know, I've got such a bad habit, I just have to have my cup of coffee every day. You know. Terrible habit. So this is it. You've already, instead of understanding that having a cup of coffee becomes only painful when you suffer when it isn't there. You know. You can go without your cup of coffee and not make the world a miserable place when you don't get it. Then it's okay to have a cup of coffee. You know. So the Buddha is pointing to attachment, not to what you drink or don't drink. He's pointing to the fact that if you don't get what you are used to and stop suffering from it, then that's a work you need to do. Understand, you know, start doing uh, the, the practice that allows you to be free from this attachment. So this is why in our monastic training, sometimes we do some certain ascetic practices to make you realize from direct experience that you can go with that. Like just celibacy. A man and women, celibate women, celibate men. In Thailand, for example, you ordain. All the men ordain for two weeks to three months. That teach them how to be celibate for a few months and not go crazy at the thought they could not be celibate without, you know, and so the, the path of practice is understanding attachment. Not trying to make yourself somebody who does not have any sense pleasure. So when pleasure arises, you enjoy it. When it's gone, you don't make a problem about it. When it comes back to you, you enjoy it. And when it's gone, you're free. It's not you, 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 you don't go into a rage. You don't have to shut your mind through drugs, distractions, you know, and repress everything. You just, you know, it's just gone. So, and you're not looking for the next one. So we spend a lot of time recreating pleasure out of ignorance. So the cause of suffering, huh? Kamatanha, remember that we are in a world where there's a constant alternating of pleasure and pain. Constant. When the mind is in pain, it pressurizes you to get into the pleasure mode. Once you have had enough pleasure and get bored to it, then you start suffering because you're attached to the pleasure. When you start suffering, the mind starts pressurizing you in small or big ways until you finally act, get reborn into pleasure. 
people, some people have enough money, enough circumstances, circumstances in their life to have all the pleasures in the world they can get. Look what happened to the Buddha. He wasn't interested after a certain time when he started, began to wake up to the fact that this life is transient, this life is fleeting, and there's really nothing we will hold on to at the end of it. The body is changing, the body is getting old. Sickness, sickness can strike any time, can strike any time. Yeah. So we never know what will happen. Everything is very uncertain. One of the main teachings of Ajahn Shah was my name. Nenon in Thai means certain. My Nenon or my ne, short, shortened version, is uncertain. The great, you know, most of the teaching, most of the training in the forest monasteries, which drive people mad, especially for your Westerner, is that everything, you never know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. You never know when you're going to go, where you are going to go. It's, that was the training of my teacher. At Chinsomedo, when he was in Thailand, you could be asked at the very last minute to come and do it on a trip. Things could change very quickly without warnings. So, um, observe in your life, you know, that we are here to learn. I don't know if you've realized that. We are lazy. No, we are not lazy, but the mind is lazy, you know. Just want the easy way. Just want to be enlightened in two or three minutes. Or you want to be enlightened by being in the best retreat center with the best teacher, the best teachings, and hopefully in the summertime. (laughs) In the most beautiful settings. We can't imagine being enlightened in a rotten little place with a rotten little person next to you. <laughs> and a rotten little moment of heedlessness. <laughs> Do we? Doesn't occur to us. We, we're still looking for the per- perfect place to understand. You know. So this is something that we need to consider carefully, you know, how much we are not looking really for Nibbana or freedom, we're still looking for heaven. The Sukha realm, the realm of sweetness, the sweet dew of the heavenly realm with little kind of heavenly little creatures playing harps and singing sweet tunes of eternal life. Pink, <laughs> the pink cloud. Um, you know, most of our conditioning, most of our conditioning is committed to that. It's kind of funny when you realize that, you know. But when you get in touch with reality, it's actually very enlivening, you know, when you see that your mind is truly committed just to be happy. Not the happiness of liberation, but just the happiness of just, you know, getting by. The happiness of um, that comes from attachment, not the happiness or the joy that comes from comes from letting go, 
but the happiness of attachment. So this is a different kind of happiness. And it's still condition. It's still, um, you know, um, unfortunately, that kind of happiness is dependent on pain as well. It's, it's it conditions pain again and again and again. That's why it's very unsatisfactory and it's dukkha. Now, the second aspect of the uh, cause of suffering is uh, the desire to become. They say, wow, I want things and I want a bigger house, I want a bigger job and I want more money and I want to be more successful. What do I do? I want to become this. I want to become the president of America. Or I just want to become a good wife, a good husband, a good partner. I want to become good. I want to become a good Buddhist. And the Buddha said, wanting to become, clinging to becoming, power tanha is a cause of suffering. So the ego mind will think, well, then I should not become anything. Sit here till I die on my cushion, not becoming anything. Just give up on life. Because the whole life is actually a process of becoming, you know, from one year to the next, things keep on moving on. From one minute to the next, from one moment to the next, there's a constant movement of the mind. That's a becoming. Now what the Buddha is pointing to is that there is becoming, but we don't have to cling to it. You see? It's a different thing. We can observe becoming. Becoming is a natural process. From being a small, we become a an older child and then a teenager and then an adult and then a middle age and then an older person and so on. The becoming is everywhere. The seasons are becoming all the time. Sort of cyclic becoming, but it's becoming. In our culture, where the time is seen in a very linear way rather than a cyclic way, there is even more that sense of progress. You know, we're going somewhere in the West. You know, Science has make us, made us believe that you know we really are making progress, and then you hear all these books and look, I'm going to be really unpopular. You, you read these books on the Dalai Lama meeting with those great scientists, you know, and the Dalai Lama says something, a statement about the truth or some kind, and the scientists come along and say, you know, we've discovered that truly this is actually Anicca. This is fabulous. We've been going through the microscope. We've been using all this research for the last 20 years. We finally, this is impermanent. And they come to the Dalai Lama. It always makes me laugh myself. I don't know how the Dalai Lama doesn't have, doesn't, has the strength not to chuckle. <laughs> how he can bear it, you know. This very famous scientist come along and say, you know, we finally discovered that the mind is actually not really self. It has no entity in there. Ha, ha, ha. You know. So you can see, we're still kind of swimming in the dark, aren't we? As a meditator, you already know that. You know, you don't need to have a grant for 20 years research to find out that things are impermanent. And I'm making joke of that, but it's not really a joke. It's really serious, you know. But this is where, you know, I think those 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 kind of meetings of science and Buddhism are extremely important, just for to get to have some confidence 
in our own understanding of things, you know, because we have such a loyalty to science, you know, that as long as science recognizes true, then we start believing it. Of course, the Buddha said the process, <laughs> the path of practice is not about believing, but investigating yourself and finding out for yourself. But there is an, a, a, a great element of faith, which is so important in our practice. That's another topic altogether. But faith, well, maybe I'll talk about that another time. But to go back to becoming, so that the Buddha doesn't say you should not become anything. There is constant becoming. When you are, when you, every action will have a result, which is a process of becoming. But you don't have to be attached to the result. And you don't have to be attached to the actions, you know. You can just do from, from, from a response from the, from the heart, from your, from wisdom, from compassion, is to do good, okay. You don't have to be attached to that. You don't have to become good. You just do it because that's just a normal, that's just a response from a mind that is not filled with anger, greed and delusion. You know, when it's not filled with those forces, then you respond very kindly, very generously, compassionately. And then the flip side of becoming is non-becoming. You know, it's like, once you've been successful for too long, then you get fed up with it. And you realize it's not leading you anywhere and you want to become a monk. You know, <laughs> it's a very bad way of entering monkhood, but... Because you, know, you have the same problem. You're, you want to be a successful monk. And then that doesn't work and you want to go back into lay life and do something else. So the Buddha doesn't say you should not not become something. And that that is probably... The strongest, um, the strongest habit in the Western mind is the desire not to become. It's very strong. It goes together with anger. Anger. You know? Instead of allow, allowing things to unfold as they should, as they, as they do, you know, as soon as something is unpleasant, we want to just kill it. We just want to eradicate it, exterminate it, make it disappear for good. You know, as soon as something doesn't fit into our plans, the tendency is aversion. And that aversion goes together with not allowing things to become. You know. Now sometimes, sometimes you could say it's skillful, you know, when something is really uh, dangerous and you want to stop it. You know. But there is a way of stopping that comes from wisdom and the stopping that comes from aversion. It's two different motivations. You know. So let's say, for example, you're in relationships or work situation. You know. Maybe the work situation or the relationship becomes unbearable, not so much because the situation itself is unbearable, but because you can't bear with the suffering the becoming of that situation. You can't bear with it. There's not enough forbearance. You know. We are part of a culture which is very committed to impatience. You know, impatience is you know, there was a billboard in England twenty four years ago which which said it was a, an advertisement for a bank. It was saying taking the waiting out of the wanting. (laughs) 
And that summarizes very much <laughs> our life, isn't it? Taking the waiting out of the wanting. That's why when things don't become the way we like them, then we don't want to become. We just refuse what's happening. We shut down. We, we close our eyes, ears, tongue, body, mind, everything. We just shut down and hope. You know, it's like the ostrich. You just go in to bury its head into the sand and hope that thing will work out. <laughs> so you can see how we're not really, um, we're not encouraged to live our life using all the potential, that all the means and the tools that we have to not be attached to becoming or not non-becoming. You know, we can be attached. I mean, in fact, the guilt that we carry around all the time is a form of attachment to non-becoming. You know, I'm a bad person. I'm I'm a person that gets angry with people. Sure. So what? What's the problem? You know? Yeah, you're going to make people miserable. Yes, but. Okay. And I feel really guilty about my anger. Okay. So where do we, where do we go from there? You know? Are we, you know, all these things that we say, all the justification is a, is a way of not becoming what is supposed to happen. Like they say, when we're angry, okay, with someone, then instead of being with the anger and the experience of the, f- the flow of this anger, we immediately shut down and try to justify the fact that we are angry because they are misbehaving. They are misbehaving. Instead of being with the feeling in the body, allowing to be and to, to, to become which, to the point where it actually goes, we attach to the aversion to this feeling and attach to non-becoming and suppress. Suppression is what what is meant by non-becoming. Attachment to non-becoming is a form of suppression, repression. Let's say um, you see something pleasant. You see a nice, let's say, uh, your favorite cakes, your favorite sights or whatever, you know. And then, instead of learning from the becoming, you know, that, that arise, let's say, you say, I want it, I like it, I need it, I know. And you can feel the body getting filled with all this wanting and wanting and wanting. Instead of just enjoying the experience that's a re- that has a reason out of seeing a sight or a, a, some, a, a visual object, a pleasant visual object, instead of allowing the pleasure to be there, you know, Immediately you say, oh, the Buddha said, I shouldn't be eating that. That's not good. You immediately kind of suppress it. Instead of allowing, even like with sexual energy. You know, you see somebody attractive or, you know, you feel attracted to a man or women or whatever. You know, instead of allowing the feelings to be there without being completely taken over, you know, you suddenly feel guilty and bad. I shouldn't be feeling that. I shouldn't be doing that. No, no. Or the flip side is that you become. You not become or you become. And you have to have her or him. I've got to get, got to do what is necessary. 
instead of allowing the feeling of sexual energy to come up, attraction energy, the feeling of attraction, and then letting it be, enjoying what is there, you know, and then not clinging to it. When the causes are gone, the feeling is gone. But what we do is, oh my God, I've got to phone her and phone him and do this and do that. I wonder if I should invite them to a meal or not, or, you know... Are they nice? Are they friendly? Are they good? You know, too short, too small. I don't know. <laughs> too blonde, too dark. You know, da da da. You know, instead of just allowing the, the, you know, what is present and life will take you where it's supposed to go. You know, you'll see. You don't have to run the agenda all the time. So these are the three causes of suffering. Kamatanha. You know, desire for sense pleasure and the attachment to desire. Bhavatanha, desire to become. And Vibhavatanha, the desire to not become. So let's say, I, I just want to give another example of non becoming. When you are sick, you know, most of us want to get rid of the sickness. You don't want to become a sick person. When you are Getting older, you don't want to become an old person. When you are, you know, when you are hungry, you don't want to become hungry. So you have to act on it all the time. Instead of allowing those desires to come up and go. So, um, in the teachings, the, the suffering has to be understood. The Buddha says, and the cause of suffering, we have to abandon the cause of suffering. Yeah. And our cause of suffering, you notice the three had one common word. It's tan, tanha. Kamma tanha, bhava tanha, vibhava tanha. Tanha is a common thread. So what do we have? It's not that we have to, you know, do anything about sense sense pleasure, you don't need to worry about that, or becoming or not becoming. But the tanha itself is really what needs to be seen. And you, whenever you suffer, it's, it's really simple. Whenever you suffer, there's an attachment. The symptoms of attachment is pain. So pain doesn't be, is no more, you could say, an enemy, it's no more an adverse situation, an adverse feeling, an adverse anything. If you're really interested in liberating yourself, pain becomes the doorway to liberation. So that makes life so much more fun. You know? Because if we really see this, then we're fearless, you see? And I'm... As a, you know, don't think I've got it right. Um, myself, it's an ongoing learning, ongoing, 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 and the challenges get more intense sometimes as you practice more, more intense, more difficult. You you meet the conceit, the pride, the identification, the, you know, at levels which you, you know, could make you feel, you know, am I practicing correctly? No, the practice is fine. It's a matter of just allowing life to keep on teaching you where you are stuck, where you are attached. 
Do you want to know that? Or you want to be the ostrich that just buries their head into the sand and just hope for the best? So I leave you on those. The first two aspects of the noble, the, the four noble truths. And I'll talk more maybe about the ending of suffering. Right now I'm leaving you on just looking at it with no hope. <laughs> so that you lose all hope of getting out of suffering. <laughs> By the means that you usually use, you know. Of course we do. There is an ending to suffering. Otherwise it will be dreadful, won't it? Dreadful predicament. But truly, and I'm sure that many of you have already experienced that so many times, you know, that it gives you the faith and the confidence to pursue the path, you know, to continue, no matter what happens, to continue despite the challenges of life. So, it's like see, see each other as a big family. You know, it's really important, I find, that we see each other, helping each other to see, to go beyond um, the tendency to feel victimized by life because it's a very strong traits in ourselves. You know, very difficult to move beyond that, to not be attached to life. You know, as a personal fraud, <laughs> as a personal kind of um, failure. Sometimes, you know. Any questions? We maybe another ten minutes for questions. There's right way to end pain and wrong way to end pain. No, I may have misunderstood, but yeah. you seem to talk about there was, a, there was a way... Well, we can end pain out of delusion, you mean, and end pain. Like, should we be helping to heal people, if possible? Which kind of people? Oh, ill, sick people. Like mentally or whatever. Sure, sure. Even the Buddha, in the Buddhist time, when one monk was very ill and kind of... Um, and the monks, for some reason, I don't, can't remember the context exactly, but didn't actually take care of him. So the Buddha went himself to look after him and then uh, established a standard for the monks to take care of each other in case of illness, in the, in, in the situation of illnesses. It's, yes, um, you know, there, there is a, a natural suffering that you can alleviate, you know. Like the suffering of uh, sickness, you know, the Buddha had a whole list of remedies for to help the body, you know, for the monks and nuns living in the forest to help the body uh, in case of sicknesses. Um, you know, when you see uh, somebody who is in pain to help them, it's very important to do what is necessary to help them in whatever way you can. If somebody is suffering through poverty, to help them. If somebody is suffering through, um, you know, um, whatever, whatever cause, you know, if you can help them to alleviate, that's important. The Buddha talks about the suffering of attachment, you know, in oneself. He's not saying you should not help other people. In fact, I give you another little teachings, which is very sweet. It's the story of an acrobat and his apprentice. 
and uh, the Buddha, um, you know, tells that this acrobat uh, is t- talking, says to his apprentice, um, you know, you take care of me and I take care of you before they start going on stage. And the apprentice says, well, no, I think it's better if I take care of myself and you take care of yourself. And the Buddha says, the apprentice has got the right view, understand correctly. And the, at the, at the short story, and at the end there's a little moral. You see moral? And the moral is, um, how do helping myself, I help others through mindfulness? And how do helping others, I help myself through compassion, loving kindness, and patience? You know, so that, for me, was a very important discovery when I saw, because um, in the Theravada tradition, the, the, the sort of the compassion for others is not emphasized in the way that you have perhaps in the Mahayana tradition, in the Tibetan tradition. Or, but you have enough a glimpse of, in the teaching of the way the Buddha saw the world and the response that we should have to the world. You know, There's enough stories, enough examples throughout his life which really uh, does not give any doubt as, as how to, we should compassionately respond to life you know, and alleviate the pain if it can be alleviated. In fact, his whole teaching is a response to the sickness of the mind, human mind, you see. The whole teaching is actually means and remedies that help us to alleviate the suffering of that is caused by greed, hatred and delusion. So you can see his compassion respond right there and then. Do you have a uh, working definition for delusion? A working definition? <laughs> Whenever I'm paying attention to that element, I'm always needing to do a step to get to it, whereas greed or hatred or well, delusion is more difficult, you see, because uh, we, we, it's actually, um, we are deluded because we don't know what's happening. <laughs> see what I mean? So, um, delusion has, has, is, 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 is more difficult to, um, to pin down um, because it's really not knowing, unknowing, not knowing, you know. So, uh, the, the the best way to pin down delusion is actually to work with a vulnerable truth. You know, the symptom of pain is a manifestation of delusion, you could say. You know, and which which uh, which um, you could say uh, uh, becomes uh, you know through greed and through hatred. You could say delusion is like the umbrella in which greed hatred. Greed and hatred um, manifest. So delusion becomes more and more apparent uh, through insight. You know, when you have insight into the nature of your, uh, you know, of your mind, your body, then you realize it's a ha ha ah I hadn't seen that. You know, so you can't know it. It's almost like you can't know it. You can't know what delusion is until there is a ha ha, you know, moment when you see a pattern of thought that has been really painful for a long time. But because there was not knowing, you just felt the pain and had no idea where it, was, where it came from. Do you think it's useful then in working with delusion to, um, to 
formulated as a diluted thought, diluted thinking, or diluted action, to kind of tie it with something like that where it's more observable? Um, okay, I see what you mean. Um, you mean like when you are angry, you can say I'm really angry, angry with that person, and you can objectify it more easily? Uh, well, like, like being self-centered. Yeah. Uh, well, well also, okay, okay, we're getting there. So let's say um, you're talking, uh, delusion will be, for example, what is described as a, the, the ten kilesa, for example, the, what we call the ten defilements. Greed, hatred, conceit, delusion, aversion, and so on and so on, you know. And so this is a manifestation, the unskillful, what is called unskillful mental states are a manifestation of delusion. Okay? Whenever there is greed, then there is delusion. Whenever there is, um, you know, uh, hatred or anger or conceit, pride, um, you know, and, and jealousy, envy, uh, meanness and so on. These are the manifestation of delusion. That's how you can see it. You can see avidya. Go to the scriptures and find the ten defilements, you know, the ten kilesa, and you'll, you'll, you have a map to recognize them when they arise. And uh, one monk in Thailand who is an English monk, very nice, he's been practicing for over 55 years now, 75 I think, he ordained very young, and he, when I visited him a number of years ago, um, I met him, and he's a very good teacher. And someone later on gave me a talk of his. He's a disciple of Ajahn Mahabua. And somebody gave me a talk of his, and it's an interesting way of describing, um, you know, the human predicament. He was saying at some point in his talk that whenever you look at somebody, Most of what you see is actually kilesa. You know, you know in, in the West, you say, we're more prone to say, to come from a loving, compassionate place looking at other people, you know, because we have a strong roots in the Christian teaching where compassion and love is strongly emphasized. In the Buddhist teaching in the first tradition, is the wisdom is more emphasized almost, you know, so uh, cutting through delusion. Right. So the teacher, the teacher will say, whenever, whenever I look at this person or that, any person, you know, you could say 75% is what you see is actually kilesa. So don't expect people to be different. Because 75, if not more percentage of their personality is actually made up of greed, hatred and delusion and attachment to, you know, the various defilements of the mind. But we tend to approach each individual with great expectations, which is not even, uh, you know, an, a, a response, a loving response. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a selfish response. We expect people to be a certain way, so I won't be disappointed. Or I will continue to experience a sense of pleasure with this person, or, you know, mental or physical or psychological or emotional or whatever, whatever way. Make sense? Okay.